Chapter 17 of The Browns at Mount Hermon by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 The Browns and the Brownings at Church. It was some two hours later that Farmer Brown, sitting at his bountifully spread breakfast table, looked troubled over a message that his young daughter brought from the guest room. Father, he says he won't have any breakfast, only a glass of milk in his room if it isn't too much trouble. Show said Farmer Brown, that's too bad. He's fretting over his preaching, and there isn't any kind of need of it. I know just as well as I want to that it will go all right. If he had ever heard Mr. Sutton, he'd know it too. Why, Mother, if you had heard him talk last night, you'd know in a minute that he could preach or do anything he wanted to. What he ought to do is to come down and eat a good hearty breakfast. Some of this nice ham and a fresh egg or two would set him right up. But there's something about him, young as he is, that makes you feel he knows his own mind, and I don't like to interfere. So a pitcher of creamy milk and a plate of fresh rolls were dispatched to the young man's room. Another disappointment awaited the good farmer. A little while before his hospitable spring wagon, drawn this time by two stout horses and having in it three seats, ready to pick up less fortunate neighbors, was ready to start for church, his guest came springing down the stairs and asked for careful directions for the trip across lots and strode away. "'Don't you be a mite worried,' his host called after him cheerfully. "'I ain't the least speck in the world. I know you'll come out all right. See if you don't. The Lord takes care of young folks who are trying to honor him. I've seen that proved a hundred times. This last was to his wife and daughter, for Kendall Browning was already out of hearing. A surprise awaited Farmer Brown. When he at last had his horses comfortably settled and appeared in the doorway of the little church, the size of the audience, he afterwards explained, almost took him off his feet. On ordinary summer days, if twenty grown people were present at the service, he had been in the habit of remarking cheerfully that they had a real good house today. What was his astonishment to find nearly every seat in the little house already filled, although there were still five minutes before the service would begin. In some way the impression had evidently gone abroad that there were to be unusual doings at the chapel that morning. In truth, the good farmer, without realizing it, had been busy the day before doing what he could to create such an impression. To every person he met he had said, "'Come over to the church tomorrow and hear our young man. We've got a new one, and he can't be beat.' As for the young man, who was already in the minister's chair, he knew three things. First, that Miss Roberts was there, sitting beside the young woman who had given him a message from his mother. He had given the girl one swift glance as he seated himself, and had seen, all in white, that which had suggested to him a vision of angels. Then he saw Mr. Brown and the boys, but they were decorous and dignified. To them there was nothing incongruous in seeing their new acquaintance in the seat of the preacher. But the sight that would have struck dumb the Kendall Browning of yesterday was a row of Carmen College boys filling two front seats and nudging one another and grinning conspicuously over the wonder in the pulpit. Browning had not thought of this, even as a remote possibility, and it gave him a strange thrill, but not of fear. He had been thinking a good deal about Dennison, and Dennison was there. Had he possibly been given a word especially for him? The advent of the college boys had, at least from the human side, resulted from very natural causes. While they had been in full tide of talk the night before, going over the history of Kendall Browning as they knew it in college, and touching on his latest prank, the dire result of which they partly surmised, a young fellow in front of them suddenly wheeled around with a question. "'Say, are you talking about that chap who said poetry over there at the campground tonight, and sang songs and did lots of things? I thought you were. Well, he's the one that's going to preach at our church tomorrow.' The outburst of merriment from the boys over this piece of news rose above the noise of the train, and Dennison explained, I guess not much, my good fellow. That was a Carmen College man, and he isn't exactly a preacher. It's him all the same, said the other confidently. Ain't he the one that sang the solo, and you boys joined in the chorus, and ain't his name Browning? He's the man. 
He's staying at Joel Brown's house, back here two or three miles from the camp, and he told me all about him. Why, I live out there myself when I'm at home, and I ought to know about things. Joel Brown said it was a pity I'd got to go back tonight. He said I ought to stay so as to hear him preach. He believed he could preach as well as he could sing. But I work at the engine house, and I've got to be on duty tomorrow. I'm awful sorry, too. When I heard him going on tonight, I made up my mind that he had a lot more preaching him than the other one. He's Mr. Sutton, you know. He's from Carmen College, too. Know him? I don't care much for his preaching. Oh, it's all right, of course, and good enough for them that like it, but I never get interested in it somehow. I'd like first-rate to hear this one. Boys, said Dennison in undertone, but with an emphasis that carried conviction, I believe he is right. This is the climax we were watching for tonight. It's Brownie's latest. Yes, sir, that's it. He was posing all the evening as a preacher, and that's the reason he was so mulish about the songs and the stories that we wanted, and tomorrow he's going to stand up in the pulpit and preach a sermon. I say, boys, let's be in it. We belong in this joke anyhow. We have helped him carry it out so far. It's no more than fair to stand by him. He ought to be choked for not giving us the hint. I bet he'd rather be choked than to have us come, said one of the quieter boys. If you are right in your guess, Dennison, our sudden appearance might throw him off his base. He deserves to be the scamp. He hasn't any honest base to stand on. I say, let's go out in a body. We can take the morning accommodation and get there just in time. And there they were. There was nudging and whispering among them as Kendall Browning came swiftly down the aisle and mounted the little platform that served as a pulpit. "'It's his ghost,' murmured one. "'Look at him. He is white to the lips.' "'He can read yet,' murmured Dennison, as, after a brief earnest prayer offered by Farmer Brown, the young man announced the hymn, and read it in such fashion that the little church fairly held its breath to listen. It was not a familiar hymn. Indeed, it had never before been sung in that little church, and most of the worshippers there had never heard it before, although it was in their collection. But the reader read it as though it had been written for that particular hour, and voiced the feeling of his soul. No, not despairingly, come I to thee. No, not distrustingly, bend I the knee. Sin hath gone over me, yet this is still my plea. Jesus hath died. Lord, I confess to thee sadly my sin. All I am tell I thee, all I have been. Purge thou my sin away, wash thou my soul this day. Lord, make me clean. Faithful and just art thou, forgiving all, Loving and kind art thou, when poor ones call. Lord, let thy cleansing blood, blood of the Lamb of God, Pass o'er my soul. There had never been such singing in the little church as followed the reading of that hymn. Just before the service began, Farmer Brown had announced to the preacher in a troubled whisper that their singing leader hadn't come. He was sure he didn't know why. They could most always depend on him, and he didn't know as there was one of their folks in the church who could raise the tunes, though they could all sing if it was started. Therefore young Browning, as soon as he had read the words, began to sing, and the Carmen College boys, five of whom were members of the same glee club with himself, chose to join him. The guests from the assembly grounds were evidently all singers, and some of them knew this hymn, or joined in it as though they did. When Kendall Browning caught once a sweet, clear strain from Aileen Roberts's lips, he thought again of angels. For himself he wanted to sing, he had never felt more like song, and he knew that he had never sung before as he did that morning, for the heart went with the words. When he reached the strain, Faithful and just thou art, forgiving all, he let the joy of his recent discovery as to the truth of that statement roll heavenward in song. The talk that followed was as unaccustomed to the ears of those who listened as the hymn had been. Not Sutton, certainly, had ever thought to tell the simple story of a soul on whom the light from the Son of Righteousness had dawned consciously for the first time. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. Those were the words the young preacher had chosen as a center around which to weave his tale. It was very simply told. 
There was no attempt at oratory, and he had forgotten that he was expected to preach. He had made a discovery and enjoyed a realization of something that was blessed to him and was for them as well, and he wanted to tell them all about it. That was all. He was by no means unpleasantly personal. He entered into the details of his life only far enough to make plain to his listeners what he now felt sure of, that the Lord was in it all, had been from the beginning, and had brought him step by step to the day and hour when a decision had to be made, and to be made for life. He told about the old hymn, Why Not Tonight, and of the tender wistfulness of his mother's voice when she, not having heard the hymn that night, nor known of its being sung, used the same words and sought to win his answer to them. He told how he put her off with an excuse, how he had always been putting her off with all sorts of cheerful excuses, how he had gone on from year to year putting off, knowing his duty, understanding perfectly the claims of a religious life upon a responsible person, believing fully and unreservedly in the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior and leader, yet making his life one long record of folly and disappointment. He told them briefly, yet with strong feeling, of his hastily undertaken journey of the morning before, of its being providentially intercepted, of his being providentially met by the Lord's messenger disguised as Farmer Brown, of the kind words that had mistaken him for a servant of the Lord and mapped out work to be done for him, of the message from his mother coming just then of all times in his life, of the presence, or at least the voice, in the silence and solemnity of his room, repeating steadily the old question, Why not tonight? and forcing him to the conviction that the night had come in which that question must, so far as he was concerned, be answered once for all. Very simply and quietly he told of the surrendered will at last, and the glory of the new morning, and his assured and blessed conviction that the Lord was in it all. "'Boys,' he said suddenly, looking straight at the Carmen College group, "'I know that this is a great astonishment to you. You did not expect ever to see me in such a place as this, and discovering me, you did not in the least expect from me such words as I have spoken. You all know that some tremendous change must have come to me since you saw me but a few hours ago, and there has.' the most tremendous change I believe that a human life is capable of experiencing. I will not accept even that other change when the soul parts company from the body and goes its way, for that is only taking the journey to which one has looked forward, to reach the home where one has planned to be. But this is a changed will. New life, new love, new desires, new intentions. Boys, I am in dead earnest, and the Lord is in it, as surely as he was with that wanderer from whose words I took the Bible verse I gave you this morning. Like Jacob, I knew it not. I believed that I was running away from him, from responsibility, from honor, and he followed me every step, and drew me to the place where his people gather, so that the words of an old hymn which my mother used to sing in her childhood, and which I never understood and laughed over as meaningless, has come to me to voice the thought of my heart this morning. "'Twas the same love that spread the feast, that sweetly forced me in, else I had still refused to taste and wandered in my sin." Comrades, you will be sure that this ought to make a tremendous difference in my entire life, and I am sure that it will. Some things, a good many things, will have to be radically changed, and shall be. It could not be otherwise in any life, and in mine, I know just what you are thinking, that there is special need for change, and there is. Now why am I standing in this place consecrated to the service of God, and taking up the time with telling my story? What excuse is there for such an act? Just one, friends. One motive alone prompted me to carry out in dead earnest what the Lord has forgiven me for beginning in jest. It is because I wanted the opportunity to ask any who listened to me, who had not already taken the single step which means decision, to take it now. Listen. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him, and will sup with him, and he with me. Did you ever stop to consider who it is who said that? 
Do you realize that it is the Lord Christ? You believe in him, don't you? Did you ever hear of such a marvelous opportunity as that? I learned that verse from a little pictured card given me in Sunday school when I was six years old. I knew no more what the words meant than if it had been written in Hebrew. They have been lying dormant in my memory all these years. I haven't even taken the trouble to think about them. Wasn't that marvelous stupidity on my part? What I want to tell you is that this morning, only this morning, he verified to me the truth of those words, and all I did was to open the door. Comrades, will you try it? They listened, some of them at first with half-amused, half-puzzled smiles on their faces, and a general air of expectancy as though somewhere the ludicrous would appear. Gradually the smiles faded, the faces grew grave. One or two partially shaded them with their hands. Dennison, at the mention of the waiting mother, surreptitiously brushed away a tear. He, too, had a waiting mother. One bowed his head on his hand and did not raise it again during the service. His mother had waited, and waited, in vain, and then had gone away forever. End of chapter 17